From KCRW, I'm Kim Masters, and this is The Business. Composer Laura Karpman, now Oscar-nominated for her work on American fiction, has managed to find success writing music for movies, TV shows, and games, even though the playing field was not level. It's easy to blame yourself for things, and I think, you know, I saw my beautiful male allies' careers shoot up, and, and mine didn't do the same. I started thinking maybe there was, <laughs> maybe it was a forces beyond me. Laura Karpman talks to NPR contributor Jeff London about why she helped found the Alliance of Women Film Composers. And she explains how sneaking a theme song into a Disney Plus Marvel show helped her get hired on her first big-budget movie. But first we banter. Stick around. It's The Business from KCRW. I am joined by my colleague in banter, Matt Bellany. Hello, Matt. Hi there. So a couple of executive moves to discuss. Dan Lin is a producer. Some people remember he almost took a job running DC at Warner Brothers Discovery, but it didn't work out. He's going to be getting the movie job at Netflix, taking Scott Stuber's place, sort of. But at this point, we think that Netflix will be making fewer and less expensive movies, and he will be overseeing those and reporting to Bella Bergeria, which is kind of interesting. She doesn't have movie experience, but Dan Lin certainly does. At Disney, David Greenbaum has replaced Sean Bailey. Uh, David Greenbaum comes from what was Fox Searchlight. Now they call it Searchlight, I think. He's got a big art house background and has great relationships with art house filmmakers. A little surprising since the Disney movie label has been kind of like, let's make a live action version of Beauty and the Beast. So maybe they're trying to shake things up ahead of their shareholder meeting with the challenge and show we're making changes and do something different. Yeah, and Greenbaum actually has a larger job than Sean Bailey had, who was, as you mentioned, mostly making remakes of their hit animated films and the franchise stuff. He's going to be overseeing 20th Century Studios, which is the arm that came from Fox. And I think this signals that they are going to be making at least a few more original movies at Disney, which, you know, they have kind of shied away from and leaned really into the franchises in the Iger era. And if that means that, you know, they are signaling that, okay, we can't just do the hits. We got to at least try to create some new franchises. That is a big shift at Disney. And at Netflix, you know, this job is a very big job. The Dan Lin job is going to oversee what, you know, 20, 30 movies a year. I don't think so. I I just don't think they're going to do that many. Uh, You don't think, I mean, they were making 80, not that long ago, a year. (laughs) All right. Maybe 20. (laughs) That's definitely coming down a lot. But even that, I mean, it is a different job than what Scott Stuber had. His job was to get Netflix into the film business in a major way, throw money at talent, get movies off the ground. And I think what Netflix found is that it's very difficult to maintain quality control when you are making that many movies a year. And hopefully the Dan Lin mandate will be fewer, better, more impactful, and the Netflix quality of the movies will come up. Yeah, I'm not convinced that that will happen, but obviously we'll see. I mean, I just don't know that Netflix is going to be trying to make those awards play movies. We'll see. Let me turn to a couple of people who are trying a couple of things. Kevin Costner has walked away from the very successful Yellowstone world, and he is making not one, two, or three, but 
four Westerns. They're called Horizon and American Saga. The first two are going to be out this summer. And Kevin Costner, you know, say what you will, because I don't think he has a reputation as the most fun guy in Hollywood. He does things. I remember, I'm old enough to remember being at the Washington Post when he was making Dances with Wolves and all these editors in Washington who have no contact with Hollywood were ridiculing it. And I was like, that thing is supposed to be like a best picture contender, which, and it did win. So I say, don't underestimate Kevin Costner, even though many years have passed from then to now. Sure, yes, it's been more than 30 years since that. But that aside, let's be clear here. He is not making four movies. He would like to make four movies. The first two movies are made. The first one costs about $110 million, I am told. It was financed independently. He has not revealed who the financial backers are of this movie. Warner Brothers will distribute this movie and the follow-up, Horizon 2. And they're doing this weird thing where they're going to release them six weeks apart from each other, which is insanely risky because if the first movie doesn't really work, then you've got this second movie coming and there's not much you can do to salvage it. You just got to plow through and release it. This is the risk of the year, in my opinion. In this trailer that was released this past week, it's fine. It looks a lot like Yellowstone. There's even references to like, gotta fight for my land and things like that, <laughs> that Yellowstone fans will, will be very familiar with. Yes. But again, you know, the track record of Kevin Costner as a filmmaker, if you go way back, is very good. More recently, not as good. Yeah. And the other risk, and I feel like people are taking risks because things aren't really working as they are. And we're all dealing with a kind of constant depressing thing about how difficult the business is right now. Tom Rothman, who's not a guy who is a spendthrift in anybody's opinion, he has signed on to make four Beatles movies. These are Sam Mendes movies, and they're going to be movies that follow each of the Beatles individually, you know, four movies for four Beatles. And those are all supposed to come out in 2027. And I think you will agree that whatever risk Kevin Costner is taking, Tom Rothman is also taking a pretty dramatic uh, roll of the dice here. Yeah, it's like the height of boomer cinema right now. The boomers are getting their icons on film. But I think that's a little less risky because how well the musical biopic genre has been doing lately. We're seeing it right now with the Bob Marley movie. We saw it with Bohemian Rhapsody, the Queen movie. If you do these things right, and if fans of the artists can go to these movies and expect to hear all the songs they love, these movies can do significant business. And I think the Michael Jackson movie that's in production right now is going to try that as well. So at least Tom Rothman is taking a bet on a genre that seems to be working, whereas Kevin Costner is taking a bet on the West genre that has not really worked in recent years. Yeah. Tom Rothman says you have to match the boldness of the idea with a bold relief strategy, and it certainly is bold. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. That's Matt Bellany, founding partner of Puck News. Composer Laura Cartman has worked in film and TV and on video games for the better part of three decades. 2023 saw the release of her largest project to date, Disney's The Marvels. She also scored writer-director Cord Jefferson's sharp comedy drama, American Fiction, which led to her first Academy Award nomination. In that film, Jeffrey Wright plays author Thelonious Ellison, who bristles over the stereotyping of Black voices in literature. That frustration is on full display in a scene set in a bookstore. Wait a minute, why, why are these books here? I'm not sure. I would imagine that this author, Ellison, is black. That's me, Ellison. Yeah. He is me, 
And he and I are black. Oh, bingo. No, no bingo, Ned. These books have nothing to do with African-American studies. They're just literature. The, the blackest thing about this one is the ink. Laura Karpman talked to NPR contributor Jeff London about her work on American fiction and the Marvels. Before we talk about these two projects, yes. I'd really love to speak a bit about your background or, you know, in the MCU, uh, your origin story, if you will. Yes. Now, we met back in 2009 when your piece, Ask Your Mama, was performed at Carnegie Hall. Right. And it bridged the worlds of classical music and jazz. Can you talk just a little bit about your background training? And also, you know, you studied with some of the greatest 20th century composition teachers around, including Nadia Boulanger, who among her students were Aaron Copeland and Burt Bacharach, and of course, Milton Babbitt. Yes. I mean, that. look, exactly. And I'm going to talk for about three minutes about all of this because it's it's you say that the projects are very different, but in some ways they're not. First of all, interestingly enough, before I forget, Cor Jefferson told me that he had listened to Ask Your Mama before he hired me. And what is interesting is that all of these worlds have a lot to do with each other. And it's kind of hard to parse how. But to answer your question directly, and then maybe we'll get to it, I grew up studying classical music and jazz simultaneously. There was absolutely no hierarchy in my musical education, and they were both treated equally. I had a great, great teacher, and um, my mother was a painter and a sculptor, and she had very eclectic tastes in music, and she just played all kinds of stuff. And so there, it, I was just exposed to a lot of stuff. You know, there, there were few role models of any kind for me then, but there's certainly, you know, none in these genres, except if you look to certain composers, like a Leonard Bernstein, who, you know, uh, or, or Elmer Bernstein, or Lalo Schifrin, or, or all these these kind of really classically trained composers who did both things simultaneously. So you talk about Nadia Boulanger, who was the great teacher of composers in France. You know, she also taught Astor Piazzolla. She also taught Quincy Jones. And I think her sort of mantra was to find your own music from your own place and in your own heart and to figure out how to do it with precision and with compositional skill. I think Milton Babbitt, who I studied with at Juilliard, who probably, you know, two listeners out there will know um, <laughs> on a good day, you know, was some, he taught Stephen Sondheim. And Milton's music, if you listen to it in a certain way, is like the gnarliest music you've ever heard. But if you listen to it in another way, if you really listen in, you hear jazz. So all of these kind of separations of genres, I think, especially in American music, are, you know— somewhat artificial. I think it's just kind of how you listen in. And in terms of the Marvels, I mean, it's a secret, but I'll blow it right now on KCRW. You know, the Darben music is jazz. So, you know, Darben, who's the villain, I mean, it is a jazzy, jazzy theme for her, played by Elena Penderhughes, who's the same flute player who uh, really covered a lot of the emotional resonance in American fiction. We're absolutely going to have to talk about your instrumental choices in these projects. But also, before we get there, how did you make your way into film and television and even video games? I know you're working right now on some video games, right? 
I am. I am. So, I mean, it was a really funny thing. And when I look back, I sort of see it differently than I did even five years ago. You know, I I grew up out here. I'm a a second-generation native Angelino. My father was a cardiologist. He had a lot of patients who were in the movie business. And it's in many ways an industry town, as we all know. And um, it, it was something that I didn't think I was attracted to. I wanted to go to New York and become a New York intellectual and be a professor and write concert music. But I also simultaneously was always intrigued by drama. You know, I read plays, I loved opera, I loved musical theater. And so I think that I kind of secretly maybe even kind of wanted this, but this was my one rebellion against my dad who, you know, who really wanted me to be a film composer. But I wound up at the Sundance Institute in their first iteration of the Film Composer Labs. Um, And that was really a revelatory moment for me because at that point, you know, it was the late 80s and we were starting to see computers and synthesizers work together uh, for the first time. And I freaked. I just thought this was the whole future of music. And I felt like there was room there for me in a way that it didn't feel like there was in concert music in New York at that time. And so I came out here and I gave myself a year and I said, okay, if I don't get something within the year, I'll get a full-time teaching job. And I did. I got a television movie called My Brother's Wife, and I started working uh, relatively regularly. In terms of your writing for television, I note that you're a five-time Emmy Award winner, and you're kind of giving back specifically for female composers because you founded the Alliance for Women Film Composers and you were the first female music branch governor in the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. How did those things come about? Well, my wife is a composer who's 20 years my junior and she went to Juilliard. She also studied with Milton Babbitt. She's this amazing, amazing musician. And when we got together, and she wanted to become a film composer and move here from New York. Honestly, I I said to her, I just don't see the opportunity. I think that it's even harder now than it was before. And I have to tell you, it took me a long time to realize that. It's easy to blame yourself for things. And I think, you know, after Taken and after certain things had happened, and I saw my beautiful male allies' careers shoot up and and mine didn't do the same, I started thinking maybe there was, (laughs) maybe it was uh, forces beyond me. And so we started quietly talking to each other. I mean, my wife and I, but then other women composers. And then this incredible thing happened. Dr. Martha Lautzen included composers in her data. So in 2014, 10 years ago, she came out with data in terms of women working in the entertainment industry. And at that point, it was 2% of the top 250 box office films. So those quiet whispers became louder conversations because we had data and data is not emotional. It's not, we couldn't be accused of any of those kinds of things. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, you're complaining, you're this or that or whatever, you're whining. But no, data is just data. And so we had something really hardcore to go with. And so I founded the Alliance for Women Film Composers with several of my colleagues, Lolita Ritmanis, Miriam Cutler. And we started working towards, you know, getting more women visible. And it was interesting because the most kind of 
radical thing we did was the simplest, which was to create a directory of women film composers. Because a lot of times people would say, oh, there aren't any women film composers. And we all knew that we were there and in fact working, but there wasn't the same level of visibility. And so that goes back to my very first statement that I made, you know, that with the Marvels and with American fiction, I have a level of visibility this year that I haven't had previously. So at any rate, we founded the Alliance and, I, you know, we're making making some progress, but we can talk about that more in depth too, if you want. It's really fantastic, but we do have to get to your being part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And you started with these two Disney Plus Marvel series, uh, the animated anthology What If Mm -hmm. and uh, the live action Ms. Marvel. So what was it like working for them? You know, from having seen these shows, it seems like you had a decent budget to work with a big orchestra. Yeah, well, I think you hit the nail on the head in saying that the resources were there. And that was a significant, significant evolution for me. Because with What If, that was Marvel College, right? What If, you have to understand everything that's going on in the MCU to understand how What If makes a departure from it. So I really, (laughs) I boned up. I really learned about, you know, all the characters and all the wonderful um, music that was in the MCU and figured out ways to use it and turn it upside down. And you're right, we had a budget for an orchestra. So that was as yummy as yummy gets. (laughs) And I was able to use, you know, those skills that I had acquired over the years and and through my study. And then Ms. Marvel came after that. And in a show like that, of course, you know, I can cover the contemporary pop and I can cover the superhero themes that we wanted to write for Kamala Khan. But I needed help with a very, very rich and thorough tradition of music making. So I worked with these incredible musicians in India and Pakistan to aid me in creating an absolutely dynamic soundtrack. And that was an absolute pleasure. And as you know, you know, you mentioned Ask Your Mama early on, which was a collaboration with Jesse Norman and The Roots and Nina Freelon. And that led to a longtime collaboration with Rafael Sadiq, who's, you know, a great R&B producer and composer. And he and I did a lot of shows together. So collaborating with other musical minds, I really love it. Coming up after the break, composer Laura Karpman shares how she snagged her first big-budget movie. You're listening to The Business from KCRW. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. This is The Business, and I'm Kim Masters. Laura Karpman has had a decades-long career in composing for the screen. Now, for the first time, she's in Oscar contention for her work on Cord Jefferson's American Fiction. She talked with NPR contributor Jeff London about that project and working on her first big-budget movie. So you've worked with Marvel, and, you know... 
then they ask you to work on a $270 million film, The Marvels, which was, uh, we really have to say, very much led by female creators and stars and Nia DaCosta. All female department heads. All female department heads. Wow. So tell me a little bit about the process. You know, where did you start and, uh, you know, how did you develop all of these themes? Well, there's a little secret, and that is that I had written the main theme but hadn't played it for Kevin, I think, at that point. Nia DaCosta, the director, had heard it, but Kevin Feige didn't. And I seeded it at the end of Ms. Marvel when Carol breaks into her living room and it's kind of the precursor for the movie. I just put it in there. I thought, oh boy, if this gets approved, then I'm ready to go. Because Nia wanted a new theme for the Marvels. Um, she loved the Captain Marvel music, but felt that it wasn't right for this particular movie. So the idea was to do something new. And so I seated it there and uh, it flew. So that was a good thing. And then it became familiar to everybody. So it started there. Um, I wrote the Darben theme. I wrote theme suites, which is generally what you do for Marvel. It's actually a really neat way to work. It's kind of what's done there, and, I, and I've taken it into my compositional practice for other projects as well. You write a theme, and then you put it through the paces that you might have to go through, right? So that if you're writing a hero theme, then you put it in a tense situation. You put it in a moving situation, a kind of an emotional situation. So you make sure that that theme can withstand the bevy of emotions that occurs, um, you know, during any one of these projects. So that's how it started with the themes. We had quite a bit of time in post-production, and so I was able to really refine all of that, work on it, you know, demo stuff in test screenings. And so by the time we got to the final recording, I think everybody was really comfortable with the score. And I was able to go to Abbey Road and uh, Nora, my wife, conducted everything. We had the most unbelievable time recording. You know, Jeff, when you talk about 2023... The experience of being there in Abbey Road and spending really this incredible time with those musicians and recording these scores with all these incredible collaborators was one of the highlights of my whole life. It was just glorious. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's move on to a completely different kind of collaboration, I am assuming, because, <laughs> yes. you know, here you are doing an indie film with American fiction and on a tonal level, it occupies a completely different world. And it walks yeah. this tightrope between this sharp-edged satire and, you know, what is essentially an intimate family drama and about a guy mm -hmm. played by Jeffrey Wright brilliantly, who is, you know, kind of having a midlife crisis. And of course, his character name is Thelonious Ellison, and they all call him Monk. So it's right. almost a given that you had to write a jazzy piano forward score. So what was it like working with Cord Jefferson? And I understand that you came in a bit late to this project. Yeah. I mean, I came in, uh, that was probably a, a rough to find cut of the movie. 
They said they wanted me to come in and see the movie and then meet with them on it. So I needed to see the movie and and have ideas before I got the gig. But I read the book over the weekend, Erasure by Percival Everett, which is a work of pure, pure, pure genius. And then I saw the movie, which was such an incredible adaptation and a smart adaptation. Like if you read the book and then see the movie, you'll see really, you know, Cord at his best, really figuring out how to take this and adapt it into something that's really brilliantly cinematic. So yes, Thelonious Monk was an obvious point of departure. And they had had the score tempt with, and for those of you who don't know, most movies uh, have a temporary score, which uh, the editors and, and directors put in there just to sort of test for mood and pacing. And they had had classic jazz in the temp score. And this was all like the best music, right? This music that we all love. But the problem is, as you said, the film kind of is a lot of genres, really, within one film. And it, it it's not a lot of genres. It's actually like a human life that has satire in it, that has love in it, that has a family story in it. So we're following this guy at a point in his life where maybe things come to a head for him, I think. So the music has to be really flexible. It has to move with the emotions of the film. And, you know, if you're pulling a piece of jazz that's already recorded, it's not going to do that because it has its own agenda. So the idea was to really look to Thelonious Monk. And and we looked at like, well, can we adapt a theme of monks? Would that be effective? And ultimately, um, we decided that Monk's theme had to have stylistic similarities to Monk's music, but it also had to go to places that it needed to go to for the film. So that was the genesis of all of that. Now, I know that there are sort of two main themes. One is Monk's theme, and the other is the family theme. And I think I Mm -hmm. read somewhere where you said that it flows but never comes together. Um, So (laughs) can you talk a little bit about that? And, And actually, how you write a theme that flows but doesn't come together. Well, the family thing it goes da di ba bi ba 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 da 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 di di. So it's this kind of like really, it doesn't flow in time. You're not going to go one, two, three. The only time it does that is in the pool scene when it's a bossa nova and it's ba bi ba bi da 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 da. So that's the only time where it really comes together. But what what I did was I wrote this really flowy theme that would be almost impossible for two musicians to play at the same time. So the way that we recorded it is absolutely leaving the imperfections or I don't know if I would even call it that, although I guess I just did, the non-simultaneities in place so that when I'm playing with a guitar player or when I'm playing with Elena, the flute player, Things are not quite together. And to me, that is very much the way families are, where you, you know, you love each other, you come from the same place. You might even be going to the same place, but not always at the same time. So that was the kind of the organic conception behind the family theme. Well, you mentioned that you're playing piano on the soundtrack. You know, this is obviously very different from the Marvels. Were there, you mm-hmm. know, budgetary constraints? It's basically a really intimate score. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, how great that I got an Oscar nomination for an intimate score. I mean, that is really, um, it's a surprise. It's great. 
Yeah, there were budgetary restrictions. But, you know, I've worked my whole life like that. I mean, all the stuff we've been talking about, Marvels, that's the anomaly. This is a place where I you know, feel very, very comfortable. And so much of the score was created right here in my studio on my father's a Steinway that I had abs- absolutely rebuilt and was delivered the day that we spotted American fiction. So there's a lot of um, his soul in the score, I think, that is very meaningful to me. I also had Patrice Russian come over the great Patrice Russian, and she played on quite a, you know, a few of the cues where my fingers didn't do exactly what I wanted them to do, and hers did exactly <laughs> what what I hoped that they would do. Um, so yes, it was, that thing was recorded all here at home, you know, with some musicians recording in their own studios, and uh, it was really a family affair, and I think that that's a beautiful thing about this score. Listening to my pathology, I can tell that you're somebody who studied with, you know, Milton Babbitt and John Harbison and some other classical composers. And that is really clear, honestly, through both scores. You know, that, like the second half of my pathology, was really inspired by Herbie Hancock's recording of the Ravel Piano Concerto in his album Gershwin's World. Because I just love that. I'm obsessed with that. He plays changes over Ravel, you know, and it's just Ugh. like, it, it's one of my favorite, favorite musical pieces. You know, and that's really a joining together of classical music and jazz in a way that I really appreciate. Fantastic. Well, Laura, I'm so glad we could make this happen. It's great to speak with you. I mean, it only happens once a decade, but it's always a Let's delight. Let's make it more. Let's do it more, <laughs> Jeff. Let's do it more. Anyway, love to all of you guys, and thank you so much. And that's The Business. Joshua Farnham produced and edited today's program with help this week from Phil Richards and Nick Lamponi, who mixed the show. You can stream The Business as well as other great KCRW shows on kcrw.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kim Masters. We'll see you next week on The Business.